Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I think that, you know, we had a lot of important races. I think that the voters who are interested did turn out, but I think you have a lot of people who are really frustrated with politics right now. And so you're kind of seeing that with the, obviously the low, non-affiliated turnout. I don't think that the political environment is ripe for independence and people who don't have a party base behind them to win. I think it's just difficult and it's already so rare and it became more rare in the last 10 years of partisan divide is that partisan divide has gotten tougher to bridge. All right, folks, Alex Titus is out of the country right now. He clearly is not prioritizing the podcast in his life, but we have a suitable replacement, Reagan Canope. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Ben. I think that Alex is uh, attempting to prove that he's the most conservative by breaking through Biden's southern border protection to, <laughs> to prove that it won't work. Um, and so we wish Alex the best on that and proving himself to be the best Republican uh, in the state here. Best of luck to Alex in his journey. Okay, so today's episode, Reagan and I are both political nerds, and we have been poring over election data, reading Twitter, reading the reporting on what has happened. And so what we're going to try to do today is basically provide some high point takeaways, not just of what happened in the election, but the implications of what happens. What does it mean moving forward? What does it teach us about Oregon politics or national politics? And then we'll walk through five or six of the top flight races. I think the first thing that we need to talk about is with Oregon's system, and this was true before postmarks counted, but postmarks count for the first election in Oregon. That was a bill passed by the legislature. I think it was last year or the short session earlier this year. And so we have uh, postmarks, which means if your ballot was picked up by the Postal Service um, or dropped off directly at, a, at your UPS location, it was postmarked by Election Day, then it counts. And I think that the USPS has worked pretty well with the local clerks to make sure that those ballots are expedited to the local clerks so they get counted quickly. But those can come in up to like seven days after the election. And then also we've always had this situation with vote by mail where if you drop your ballot in the county you don't live in, those counties work to exchange the ballots and move them. And so that takes another couple of days. And so we usually have really good results on election night. And we did except uh, for one county, which we'll talk about real briefly. But it's going to take a couple of days to shake out close races. And so if we say anything here, we're kind of working with the information we have on the Thursday after election day in the afternoon. And there will probably be another update. Most of the counties are updating every evening after the election for three or four days and then every week until certification in June. So that's so, just at the top. It really important for everyone to know that not all these results are final, but a lot of them are decided. There just isn't enough ballots to change the outcome. So while we're on this, have you been tracking the Clackamas County situation? And can you give a brief overview of what the hell is going on with the Clackamas County A little County bit. So it seems like a few days before the election, election officials and the county clerk, Sherry Hall, in Clackamas County, realized that the printing of their ballots, so the out, the printing of the ballots doesn't happen at the county, it's outsourced. And the company that printed the ballots, unfortunately, either misprinted or printed. Smudged you know, the barcodes. Smudged the barcodes. Yeah. And Oregon law requires you to attempt to run them through the barcode machine, I believe. And so every ballot needs to go through that barcode machine. And uh, they have to, if they don't make it through that machine, they have to be copied to another ballot that is a fresh ballot that has a working barcode. And that has to be done by a volunteer from each political party. And then it has to be checked. And they had an emergency meeting yesterday morning at the Clackamas County Commission, got an update. 
And it seems like a couple of things are happening. One, this duplication process, we don't know exactly how many ballots it takes place on, but it's taking place on a lot more ballots than it would normally. You have a few of these messed up ballots or someone who spills their coffee on their barcode, right? So they can, they've always had this process in place, but they've never had to use it on this many ballots before. Thousands upon thousands, probably ballots. That's... They said it took them about six hours to complete 144 ballots. <laughs> and so the county administrator, and remember that the Clackamas County funds the clerk, but the clerk is separately elected. So they have to work together on this stuff. The county doesn't tell them what to do and vice versa. And they're still following all the guidelines. And so they can't open ballots and not in view of the public or that is being recorded by a camera where the public can view. And so they're, they're still working within the space that they have. But the county administrator said he's committing 200 county employees on shifts until all of these ballots get counted. And so it seems like that they're moving to address the situation as much as they can, but it's obviously not an ideal scenario uh, so for a lot of reasons. The the Oregonian, just before we started recording today, again, this is Thursday, May 19th. Headline is Clackamas County ballot counting could stretch to mid-June, comma, unapologetic county elections, head says. So the, the politics of this is really interesting. And the, the, the lead of the story is the massive delay in tabulating election results for Oregon's third largest county could continue until mid-June. The politics here are, the Secretary of State, a Democrat, Shamia Fagan, basically called out Sherry Hall. And then Tootie Smith, the Republican chair of the Clackamas County Commission, also to the press, kind of called out Sherry Hall. Sherry Hall is no stranger. She's the clerk. She's no stranger to controversy when it comes to elections-related issues. But yeah, to, to Reagan's point, the reason why this matters, there's like two or three state legislative races that we'll, we will not be able to call for weeks it's unlikely that we'll be able to officially call the Schrader Jamie McLeod Skinner race for weeks. Reagan, are you are you hearing anyone suggest that the Lori Chavez Dreamer Jimmy Crumpacker race is meaningfully impacted by this, or do they assume Lori's far enough ahead? No, I think Lori's far enough ahead. The Oregonian went ahead and called that race, but they haven't called Schrader's race, and so I think that's the way it will stay. And I think the main reason for that is because Lori's ahead. And her base is in Clackamas. She's she was elected in Clackamas and has run in Clackamas before. So in all likelihood, she's going to benefit from those votes, not lose votes. Whereas Jamie's ahead, but her base is not in Clackamas. As Schrader's is, and so he's more likely to surge from that. I don't. I think a lot of people are looking at those numbers and saying that Schrader probably won't take the lead, but he could close the gap pretty significantly with that. So, and I think that's why. So Lori would benefit and she's ahead. Schrader would benefit, but he's behind. And so that's the difference I think there. We jumped the gun a little bit by going into races. Before we dive into specific races, let's talk about high point takeaways from the 2022 primary elections. So the first one I want to introduce for listeners, a bit of a, it's not a controversy, but differing takes on Twitter about turnout. So the reporting going up to election day was like, holy cow, the turnout is so low. This could be a record low turnout. Aaron Mesh from Willamette Week said, so much for voter malaise, the absolute number of ballots Oregon election officials have received so far, which when he tweeted was 978,000, is 75,000 more votes than have ever been cast in a midterm primary. Representative Julie Fahey, the Democratic Majority Leader, then tweeted, as of 6 p.m., this was yesterday, we're now up to 999,000 ballots accepted. So far, that's a 10% increase in primary votes cast from 18 to 22. And then she goes on to predict that turnout as a percent of estimated eligible voters in Oregon, not as a percent of registered, 
will be higher in 22 than any recent midterm. John Horvick, friend of the pod, had a differing take. He basically said he's basically looking at as a percent, he's looking at turnout as a percent of registered voters, which is obviously higher this cycle and gets higher every cycle because of motor voter, automatic voter reg, et cetera. He basically says turnout among Dems is 45%, 47% among Republicans, which is average. For NAVs, it's just 13%, which is three points below the record low. With open races for the Democratic and Republican nomination for governor and open races for congressional districts and contested primary and a third one, blah, 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 blah. He says, all in all, turnout looked disappointing to me. So, Reagan, where do you fall? Disappointing turnout or impressive turnout? To me, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. I mean, I think I'd probably more likely to take Horvick's side because it's pretty, I think Fahey's probably right that if you measured as a percentage of eligible voters, it'll be higher, obviously, than registered. But was that the difference that she was talking about or was she? But we've rarely ever measured Oregon election turnout that way. That's kind of a maybe a new way to measure that might be better, but is kind of seems a little more convenient for her point. But ultimately, I don't think it matters. I think that, you know, we had a lot of important races. I think that the voters who are interested did turn out, but I think you have a lot of people who are really frustrated with politics right now. And so you're kind of seeing that with the, obviously the low non-affiliated turnout. And I think, look, it's it's just a policy choice. If your policy is you want to send a ballot to everyone, which is basically what Motor Voter does, right? If you have any contact with major government entities, a DMV specifically, you're going to end up getting a ballot unless you really say you don't want it. That's fine, but like you just expect lower voter turnout. And so if you want to be great at high turnout, then just let everyone register online in less than five minutes like we used to. But if you really do want to send everyone a ballot, go for it. It's just expect low turnout and don't have a problem with turnout being low. That's my take on it, which I think is not everyone's favorite partisan talking point, but I think it's just reality. So the next the next high point that for me, so I was looking at races where I thought the candidate overperformed my what I was expecting to happen there. Not that they won and I didn't expect them to win, but their margin or total number of votes was higher than I anticipated. Here are people who did better than I thought they would. Speaker Tina Kotek, Representative Andrea Salinas, Christina Stevenson for Bully, Jamie McLeod Skinner in CD5, Val Hoyle in CD4. All of those individuals are Democratic women. So I think one takeaway for me is that Democratic women overperformed expectations. There's a couple of cases where that wasn't true. And then the other the other takeaway, someone tweeted this, I can't remember who. It is very plausible that the number of women in Congress from Oregon is going to triple <laughs> at the end of this election cycle with Bonamici being joined by Val Hoyle and Andrea Salinas, depending on the outcomes of those races. I have no idea. And if there was you a- will have a woman elected from CD5, too. If Jamie McLeod Skinner pulls off hers, you'll have two women in those races. So Republican or Democrat, it won't matter. You'll still have another woman added to the list. That's right. I didn't even think about that because Crumpacker is out. So no matter what, there will at least be two women. And then Hoyle is up against Scarlatos and Salinas up against Mike Erickson, which we'll get to in a minute. And then this one, I'm curious your thoughts on. So going into this, there was polling. I think DHM had some polling that basically said, like, would you prefer an outsider or someone with experience? And everyone wanted an outsider. And like people have been assuming this cycle that there'd be this anti-incumbent sentiment. And up and down the ballot, I was trying to find. So in terms of incumbents who lost, Brad Witt, who it's very generous to call him an incumbent, considering his new district is miles and miles away. It's half a state away from his old district. Kurt Schrader, who, again, mm-hmm. half of his district is brand new. Aside from that, 
Dan Ryan wins easily. Joanne Hardesty overperforms what I think people expected from her. Lynn Peterson at Metro, people thought might be in trouble. She's above 50% right now, although we don't know what's happening with Clackamas County. So what do you make of what do you make of those outcomes, this anti-incumbency sentiment versus the results of the election? Well, there's one more race that I was watching, and that was Lane County. And Lane County is a blue county. And if you tabulate all the votes countywide, very blue county, but their commission system is only five and it's district based, Mm -hmm. which means that not all of those districts are bright blue. Some of them are red, some of them are competitive. And the county commission has been controlled by both Democrats and Republicans over the past 20 years. But one incumbent did lose, Joe Bernie. Now he was on his first term in there and there's late ballots. It's only 150 votes separating them. So that could flip. But I, I don't remember where I read this, if it was Willamette Week or the Oregonian. One of them said that early ballots used to lean Republican and, and that hasn't been true in the past. Every year I've worked in politics and especially last year, late ballots almost all favored Republicans as they were tabulating all those races in the legislature that were close tightened when the Republican was behind. And when the Republican was ahead, their lead extended. You think about Denise Bowles' race, you think about Jeff Helfrich's race, both of those races tightened significantly in the day or two as counting continued and those late ballots trickled in. So my feeling is that late ballots still are going to lean a little bit more Republican. They're more likely to hold their ballot. My potential pushback on that is, uh-huh. so Kitzhaber 2010, this was a race I worked on as an intern. Um, so Oh, like- yeah. So Kitzhaber was down substantially on election night and it took, I think, several days, but eventually he took, he won because there was all these late votes counted in from Multnomah County and Washington County. Yeah. I mean, that's Multnomah though. Like, but so there aren't enough Republicans for that to be a late Republican citing race. I would say most other counties, you know, most other competitive counties, Republicans hold their ballots longer. That's been my experience. I I, I think that's probably true, but my, the question will be, in 2020, there was virtually no field campaign efforts from most campaigns, which the Kitzhaber late turnout in 2010, I think, was driven largely by literally thousands of volunteers going door to door, collecting ballots, reminding people to turn them in, et cetera, et cetera. So I wonder mm-hmm. if 2022 will see. And there's something that should be stated. It is easier for Democrats to do turnout field work than Republicans because Democratic voters tend to be more compact. They tend yeah, to live. That's a great point. Um, yep. So it'll be interesting to see if that how the late ballot turn uh, returns from Republicans meets the ability of Democrats to do more turnout going door to door in in the 2022 general. Yeah. Well, and I've I've always acknowledged I think that the unions do a really good job in terms of you know they they really put a lot of effort into making sure the voters that respond to their messages do turn out. And so I think that they're and they have you know I think that they've made sure to keep their union members involved in politics. And so I think they have high participation rates on that, which means they've got a lot of boots on the ground. And it can be hard for Republicans to match that level. And they've been doing it a long time. And again, I acknowledge they're really good at it. So I think that that's also a big big piece. Before we jump into some specific races, I think the big, probably the most important conversation that needs to be had about what just happened in Oregon is a conversation about money and politics. There's a lot of people with a lot of different views on money and politics who feel validated by what happened on Tuesday night. So my initial thought, and this is not novel, is the amount of millions of dollars spent by people who 
really never had much of a chance of winning. I mean, the obvious example is Carrick Flynn with the 15 mm-hmm. million. I don't think it's fair to say that he never had a chance of winning. I think he, 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 he certainly could have went if things went differently. Cody Reynolds is 2 million. I think probably was destined to always fail hundreds of thousands of dollars spent by GOP candidates for governor who didn't even crack 10%. Hundreds of thousands of dollars spent by challengers to Val Hoyle who got 65%. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars spent in city of Portland races where, you know, I think Vadim Mazursky is in third place right now. And they probably cracked a million bucks total with him in the independent expenditures. I think this is probably always true to some degree, but in this cycle, it seemed especially pronounced, like the amount of money spent, even in places where just really no one thought it was going to come together. So that's one of the things I'm thinking about with money. Reagan, what's your what's your takeaway, given all the money that was spent? What did it mean? Well, in the landmark and totally correct Citizens United decision, the Supreme Court <laughs> said totally that, uh, no. that that speech, that speech and money are closely correlated. And the fact that your ability to spend money to say things is related to your speech and, and very closely related, if not, you know, exactly the same, right? Yeah, and rich so, people uh, should be able to speak more than poor people, right, Reagan? Yes, That's what absolutely. Saying. That's totally what I think. Um, <laughs> No, but my reason for bringing that up is I kind of think that a lot of the reason that Democrats, uh, some Democrats, not all Democrats, say that we should limit campaign finances and and the ability to give money in these races is because Phil Knight can write a million dollar check, right? And has, except for Phil Knight has written a lot of million dollar checks that, that haven't made an impact. In the sense that, yeah, New Bueller was fully funded, but it's still lost by seven points, right? And and except for Kitts Hopper in 2014, Phil Knight has not backed a winner in the governor's race, right? And so you're saying, okay, well, yeah, he can write a million dollar check, but what is that buying him? And the same thing with Flynn. He's backed by an out-of-state billionaire. And maybe Oregon is unique uh, because I've, t- I've seen people say our voters pamphlet basically makes it so that you can't buy an election because everyone has the information in front of them. And they have weeks to make the decision. And so you can't have an out-of-state billionaire coming in by a congressional race. Now, obviously, Selena's got some out-of-state money herself, a little bit, a million dollars from from a DC pack that backs Latino and Latina candidates, right? But I think that what we kind of saw was it's like, maybe Oregon is unique, but I kind of don't think so. I think that just like the money and the politics isn't buying that as many votes as it purports to it still has to be backed by good messaging and a good candidate and a ground game and so like yeah i guess limiting money in politics might fix some of the issues but i've always been more on the transparency side let people spend what they want burn cash as you were talking about candidates who spent money who really maybe had no business doing so right so i think that that like if campaign finance reform doesn't happen it's not like Oregon is going to turn red because Phil Knight writes a $10 million check. Like there's going to have to be work put in with that. And, and Republicans are going to have to make an actual, you know, have to have to make their arguments as we've always attempted to. Right. So that's, that's my view on it. I think that's actually, I, that's really well said. And I, I agree with that. I disagree with you on Citizens United, as you might expect, but I think this election cycle definitely proves that Money matters, certainly. Money is a really important factor. In fact, maybe one of the most important factors, but it is certainly not enough to overpower, you know, like, look at, let's look at, I mean, we'll, we'll come to CD6 in a second, but CD6 is a per, is the most exaggerated one. Carrick Flynn has a total of 15 or 16 million spent either by him or for him. Salinas, probably less than 5 million, maybe less than four, but 
Her endorsements were incredibly strong. To your point, she was supported by labor groups and other groups who had people on the ground volunteering for her. She had Democratic Party volunteers supporting her. She had elected experience, a really strong voters pamphlet statement, like all of those things not only beat out the money, but it also, but like beat it out substantially. Uh, one real quick non-specific race highlight that I wanted to uh, make sure listeners were aware of, and we should, we should, maybe we should talk about this at length with a guest at some point, but uh, headline from Oregon School Boards Association newsletter, election environment proves tough for school district bonds. So rural districts across the state said no to school bonds, which always makes me like genuinely feel very sad because these districts tend to have far worse facilities than Portland Metro districts. I'm talking about Morrow County voted down a school bond, Crook County voted down a school bond, South Umpqua voted down a school bond, Days Creek voted down a school bond, North Bend, Roseburg, Gervais, Lebanon, Rough. The people who did pass were the bigger Beaverton mm-hmm. passed one, Corvallis passed one, Dallas passed one, Legrand passed one, um, and Amity, I guess, is still too close to call. But I, I don't have an answer for this. But it is not it is not fair that kids growing up in rural parts of the state don't get the same kind of facilities and amenities that kids from more suburban and urban parts of the state get. And we should figure out how to fix that because it just it makes me really sad to think about. I was talking to a Republican I know in one of those rural districts, and they basically said that in their area, there was not the best effort from that local school board and from that district in terms of explaining what the bond was. And I talked to somebody else who said that I think voters, a lot of these rural bonds because they know that their voters are less interested in maybe paying taxes. the big bucks for, or yeah, paying large taxes or, or seeing large tax hikes or even investing, you know, hundreds of millions in education. They scaled back their plans and are just using it to do like, you know, significant maintenance, small renovations, and actually said that might have a negative impact actually and make it worse because people actually want to buy something significant and tangible uh-huh. instead of just general upkeep. And so like Albany passed a school bond recently, but it included a complete overhaul of the new uh, of the of the uh, West Albany High School, which is a pretty well known high school, you know, throughout the state. And there's a ton of people that I know that aren't even living in Albany or didn't for very long. They all went to West Albany High School. Right. And then we built a couple of new schools with that. And so people want to feel like they're actually getting something with their money. And so I think, you know, maybe these rural districts need to pick a large project that they can rally the community behind and then stuff all of the other stuff in with their bond measure. I don't know. But I also think that there's a lot of anger with the traditional school system in conservative communities right now for a lot of reasons. Right. And we're not, we won't go into the merit of those. But you think about the the obviously the discussions about critical race theory and racism and how it's taught in schools. A lot of the you know, obviously, in the governor's race that the uh, tampons being distributed in all bathrooms became an issue towards the end, right? There's just a lot of this stuff where I think people are are frustrated because their values don't align with the school system because the school system is, is a lot of it is directed by what happens at the state level, not at the local level, even though they do have their local school boards where they can say, make my- some, some changes. Uh, they can't make all the changes and a lot of the policy is still dictated by the state. I do feel, I genuinely feel like that. I agree that that is a perception that is very real among voters, particularly in rural parts of the state. But the idea that there's critical race theory being taught in Morrow County School District or Days Creek School District is bananas. (laughs) That is just not happening. But the media, I think, does make people feel like that is true, even if it isn't. 
I will plug, there's a state program, it's basically a bond match, a, a bond matching grant program where the state will match a certain amount of uh, local bond dollars passed by communities. And that has been a big help in, in helping some, you know, more traditionally conservative communities get bonds over the hump, but it's not, yep. I think anyone would look at the map of where bonds are passing and where they're not and see that there's uh, inequity in the system. So anyway, let's talk about the political races. We'll start with the obvious starting point, which is the governor's race. It's still early to be trying to interpret too much, but my main takeaway on the Democratic side is very commanding win for Tina Kotek. Like, I think yes. I think even Kotek's people were probably surprised by the margin. There was this reporting from Willamette Week that said they yes, sent that's, out. Do you see that's this? That's what I was going to say. Yes, I was just, this memo that was distributed by the campaign either that morning or Monday morning that basically said that turnout suggests that Reed is going to be ahead early or it's going to be really close early, but that they're still expecting to win. Uh, it says that she overcame a fundraising challenge getting outraised early on and that Treasurer Reed had won two statewide elections while she had not. And so they were, there was a lot of downplaying of, of the expectations and trying to lower that bar a little bit for her. And then she ended up surging right past it. And I think that it's pretty clear that the electorate, the Democratic electorate, from my sense, is pretty progressive in Oregon at this point. Like the, the moderate and Democrat, the progressive split is bigger than it's been I think in a long time, and it's not true in every race and for every candidate, but uh, overall the, the democratic party in Oregon is pretty progressive at this point. Well, you see the, that with them moving on from Schrader. And it's interesting because like on the national level, the progressive wing of the party is like not the establishment. The progressive wing of the nope. party is like outside the establishment and they almost have an adversarial relationship. Tina Kotek is is very much the Democratic Party leadership in Oregon, right? She was speaker for 10 years and she's a very progressive person. So really interesting yeah. political dynamic. But yeah, it's not like at the national level where like, you know, Tina Kotek is like Bernie Sanders or AOC and running from outside of the party. She was broad, like, this is the, this is a case where my, we, I think we talked about this before, like, my faith in powerful endorsements helping people win elections has been affirmed by a lot of these outcomes because this was another race where Kotech, I mean, really just dominated on the endorsement side from everything from pro-choice Oregon to Planned Parenthood to labor unions to the conservation voters. Tobias Reed was able to get two former governors and some legislators, but nothing to the scale that, that um, Speaker Kotech got. So yeah, interesting race. I think People were basically expecting this, but I don't think they were expecting the margin. Yeah, I would um, also say the endorsements thing seems a little asymmetrical, actually. I think it matters a lot on the Democratic side. I haven't seen it matter as much on the Republican side. There's a handful of groups, I think, that speak to a particular value set, Oregon Right to Life, sometimes Oregon Firearms Federation, although they've made some interesting choices that I think are limiting the impact of, of the value of their endorsements, like not endorsing any incumbents in this last election, which oh. is fascinating. And then, uh, so Oregon Rights Life's a big one, obviously. A disclaimer, I used to work at Oregon Rights Life. And then also uh, sometimes like a, a, like a gun group, sometimes the NRA, or if they come out strongly against a particular person, and then Timber Unity. But beyond that, I think that there aren't a huge number of groups or people in Oregon that can just make an endorsement that flips a ton of voters. I think that in Oregon, it is a lot more for Republicans. It's a lot more about like 
where you stand on the issues, how do you speak to the issues? Not that that isn't important for Democrats, but I just think like the the endorsements don't matter as much is what I'm trying to say for Republicans. I haven't noticed that. Well, let's let's move then to the Republicans. So mm-hmm. Christine Drazen, former House Minority Leader, is going to be the GOP nominee almost certainly. Mm-hmm. She'll probably actually be bolstered by the Clackamas County returns as they get counted. Yeah, that- that's her home county. So home I think I would say that's true. But I think she ends up with less than 30% of the vote. Is that right, Reagan? Yeah, she's at 22% now. And I think she'll end up between 22 and 25%. This is the second time I mentioned. I've mentioned this before. John Horvick is the best Oregon politics Twitter account. You should all be following him. It's at Horvick. Absolutely. But he tweeted the t- a chart of the total votes for Oregon Republican gubernatorial primary winners. So basically how many votes that each winner of the GOP primary has won in a governor's race dating back to 1938. And Christine Drazen has the lowest total number since 1938. Yeah. Which is the next lowest is 30 something with Kevin Mannix in a three way race. That was a pretty significant three way race. It no, was Rob Man- Saxton and someone else. I can't remember who Mannix, the other one was. Mannix got 117,000. Saxton got 125,000. That's Drazen, right. That's right. Drazen's at 65,000. Really, there's no one under 100,000 votes until you mm-hmm. go all the way back to. Earl Snell in 1946. So I bring that up because it's kind of interesting. I don't think that actually matters. Like I don't like we we talked about this and when we had you on last, I still think the Republicans all unite behind Christine Drazen. I don't think there's really a risk of yeah. like splintering. I will say I, I was doing the math on like the, the candidates that I would consider more of the sort of MAGA lane, like sort of Trump aligned, Carrie McQuiston, Mark Thielman, Stan Pulliam, Bridget Barden, they together earn more than Christine Drazen, but the the non-MAGA, more like traditional Republican Christine Drazen, Bob Tiernan, Bud Pierce, Jessica Gomez, they I think that it's about 50-50 on each each side of it. So interesting split, but you're the you're the GOP expert. What do you make of the primary? There's definitely that Trump is in an impact here, but it's been less pronounced just because he hasn't been active uh, here. He's only ever held one rally. And it was in 2016, early on, I think, in Eugene, maybe. And so, yeah, I just think he hasn't been active here. Some of the effects of his politics and the stuff he talks about does trickle down. But like you said, for the most part, I think it's kind of a pretty divided. And and it's race dependent, too. You look at Georgia, where Brian Kemp, the incumbent governor, has been under attack relentlessly for like two years from Donald Trump because of his unwillingness to get involved in the the election um, stuff there. Um, and, and he's pulling way ahead of David Perdue, who's out of money, um, and has pulled all of their TV ads. Like he's probably going to win 60, 30 now, but um, counterpoint, to, uh, McCrory and Ted Budd in, uh, North Carolina. That was insane. Yeah, I think, I think I was kind of already, I mean, McCrory been behind the whole time. Yeah, I think fair. the problem was more, he was in the has been category a little bit. He wasn't like, I think if it was, if it was incumbent U.S. Senator Thom Tillis versus Ted Bunn, it would have been a closer race. Bun, Bud may still have won, but like McCrory had been out of politics for a little while and I think had been always perceived as pretty establishment, but that might just be me. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. So I did, uh, Bill Post asked me on on uh, Tuesday morning to do my prediction of top five and percentages. And this is a real tweet that you can check. It's timestamped at 10.14 p.m. on uh, on Monday. How'd you do? And uh, I I guess Drazen twenty five percent, and she's right now at twenty three percent. So very good. Yeah, Tiernan at sixteen percent. He's at eighteen percent. I had Pulliam at fifteen, which was a little high. 
He's at 10. But I did have him in third place. Yeah. Pierce at 10% and McQuiston at 7%. Pierce is at nine and McQuiston is at nine. Yeah, that was very, very, so, very good. So if you, so, and I think what this would tells you is not that I'm brilliant, but that um, the Nelson Report polling that was done was accurate. It was a good read of the environment. It was the, the trend lines followed because that's all I did. I took the trend lines from the two polls and extrapolated them. And, and, uh, so the polling was really good in this particular race. Um, and Nelson hasn't done a ton of public polls, but I give him a lot of credit for being really good uh, on this one and, and hope they do some more of it because we need more public polling on the Republican and democratic sides in Oregon. Cause it's just very not active. You just have no idea how these big races are going. Um, so, um, and so I think you also kind of see the money mattering a lot in this race because Tiernan spent. And he was willing to commit to TV buys uh, and big TV buys. Drazen also committed to big TV buys. Um, I think Pulliam ended at 150, 200K in TV, which was not a lot compared to Drazen buying a million and Tiernan buying 800K, um, but also didn't buy more than a couple hundred K in TV when his opponents were buying close to a million, right? And it's so, so it's like, it, it's so funny it that matters. there have been, for the last like 10 years, it feels like there've been people saying like TV is going to start mattering way less. Like people are streaming, people are fast forwarding through the commercials. Um, sure. Seems like TV still is a powerful communication tool, at least on the Republican side, but probably for all voters. And I think for all voters, I think if you're not on TV in a competitive race where your opponent is, you're going to get blown out of the water. And that's just the truth. Like, once you make it competitive, then it's about issues. Then it's about other endorsements. Then it's about other things. But if you can't compete on TV when your opponent is, you are at risk of losing your election. Um, in small races, I think you can get away with not being on TV or beating your opponent when he's not on TV. But that's because but you have to know everybody in your community and make sure they're voting for you and all that stuff. And this is just a, a big race. And there wasn't a ton of mail either. I only got three mailers from the governor's race. And they're all from Bridget. Um, Barton. And sometimes you just don't end up on a particular person's list. Um, I know Drazen sent some pieces. I know, I know Tiernan sent some pieces, but there really wasn't a big mail fight. The mail fights happened in the congressional races, but the, this fight was on TV um, for the most part. So uh, before we wrap up the governor's race, um, important to note that there will be another woman governor of Oregon after Cape Brown, yep. it's either going to be Betsy Johnson, Christine Drazen or Tina Kotek. Um, I think worth noting that there have been widely reported in the press strained relationships among those three. Um, and I'm shocked by that development. <laughs> they're basically all already preemptively going negative against each other. Like they're immediately like on election night, we're all like trying to frame their opponents. Um, Betsy's, uh, I got Betsy Johnson's email um, that night. And it was attacking Christine Drazen for being pro-life and attacking Tina Kotek as part of the Kate Brown 2.0 establishment. And so this is what will be fascinating is you will hear Tina Kotek and Betsy Johnson say the pretty similar stuff about Drazen. And you'll see Drazen and Kotek say pretty similar stuff about Johnson. And you'll see Drazen and Johnson say pretty similar stuff about Kotek. And so I think it'll be super fascinating to well, see it, where do they actually diverge? Where are they going to try to make that contrast besides their individual lanes? Is, is there going to be policy differences or is it just going to be they're all going to set up their own camps and push, try to make their camp the biggest? My pushback is I actually think the way Kotek and Drazen talk about Johnson is going to sound very different. And Well, um, yeah, because they're trying – yeah, I'm sorry – 
maybe I didn't make that clear, but yes, I agree with you on that because they're going to be trying to make Johnson eat up their opponent's base. Exactly. And so that's, what's interesting is like in a traditional race, there's a bit, you're trying to win over 50% of the vote head to head. So there's this, like, mm-hmm. you want to bring down your opponent to some extent, but really you want to boost up your own. You want people to vote for you in this race. It like literally the most important factor will assuming Betsy Johnson doesn't win, which is an assumption that might not be true. She could win. Um, mm-hmm. At least that's what I believe. Um, the most important factor will be, does Betsy Johnson pull more votes from the Republican side or the democratic side? And that that sort of necessitates significant spending by either and or, you know, by Kotek and or Drazen to incentivize the electorate to see Betsy Johnson as one way or the other. Yeah. So all that to say, I'm anticipating this is going to be a very, very negative, lots of attack ad election. That's what I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. I, I get, You can bet on that. Um, I, I will take the opposite kind of uh, spot. I have a piece coming out soon, um, probably next month, that will basically say I don't believe Johnson has a chance at winning. And it's not because I think that Drazen's a lock to win. Obviously, this is a tough race for Republicans. Um, and I don't know that Johnson um, hurts her a bunch, but I don't know it helps her either. It's, it's kind of a mixed bag. But um, I don't think that the political environment is ripe for independence and, and people who don't have a party base behind them to win. I think it's just difficult. Um, and, and it's already so rare and it became more rare in, in the last 10 years of partisan divide is that partisan divide has gotten tougher to bridge. And so I think that there's, I think there's a handful of people in the state um, that are donating a lot of money to Betsy Johnson that love her. And I think that her district loves her. And I don't think anyone else in the state has that strong affinity for her. And I think that the party is the reason that you can overcome that. Because even if people in every other county that isn't Multnomah don't know Tina Kojak, they they identify the affinity for her by her being their party's nominee. Same thing with Drazen on the other side. Betsy Johnson doesn't have a party. And so it's really difficult, so much harder for her to build that affinity. And, and in an environment where we think that Drazen will be pretty well-funded, we think that Kotech will be pretty well-funded, even if Betsy Johnson has twice the amount of money I don't think the money buys that affinity. I think people buy that affinity. So that we'll will, see. Yeah. Uh, but I, I take the opinion that I don't think that she can go. Uh, well, we will certainly be talking a lot about this over the next few months um, before election day. Uh, transitioning to Congress, mm-hmm. um, the context. So we'll talk about the primary outcomes. The context that I uh, actually, I think you are the one who got me onto Punchbowl. Um, Punchbowl came out with. Uh, data i think it was internal polling from the democrats actually that says in a swing district where it's that you would anticipate about a 50 50 split among democrats and republicans republicans are pulling eight points ahead of a generic democrat in these tough de- districts and that's and, via d triple c polling so democrats did polling yep. that said yes. republicans are ahead so if you if you apply that margin i think cd4 5 and 6 are all considered in play um, mm-hmm. if it's an eight point swing, do I think it'll be an eight point swing in Oregon? I do not. Um, but by the national standard of that poll, these are all competitive national races. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so my take on the red wave real fast is it's earned in Oregon in other States where you have races that accidentally go Republican. Um, I don't think you see that as much in Oregon because of, of, of our system of the vote by mail of the time people have to make up their minds. Um, you're not walking into a ballot, uh, walking into a polling station angry and punching the Republican part of the ballot, right? You have some time to think about it. 
Um, maybe you are angry and you still vote that way, but it has it lessens the impact a little bit uh, of that maybe emotional response. Um, but I think it's earned. So if you run a good campaign on the issues that matter to people, you'll pick up some points on the wave. But just like in 2010, where there were places that were going hard Republican, even in Midwestern states that have traditional polling stations, Oregon still split 30-30 in a House, almost 15-15 in the Senate, and a very close governor's race. Um, so that's my take on, on what the red wave will do in Oregon. So if all those congressional campaigns, the Republicans run good races, they'll get a bump from the red wave, but they'll still have to run really excellent races in order to win. So, and to the, to the point of who, who the candidates will be, um, Val Hoyle decisive victory. I think mm -hmm. last time I looked it, wasn't it like 65% of the vote? Um, which like, I think she, everyone, we, we predicted on this podcast that she was going to win. Um, but I would not have put it at 65. Yeah. She is at 65%. The next closest is Doyle Canning at 15%. And then after that, you've got Sammy at 7%. You've got, uh, and then uh, John Selker at 5% and then Andrew Callick at less than 5%. Um, so really a very powerful showing for um, Val. She of course heads up against Alex Carlados. I know this is not a good, this is not a scientific way to compare it um, or to anticipate outcomes, but about 76,000 Democrats voted in CD4 primary and about 45,000 Republicans voted in the CD4 primary. Yeah, um, very tempting to look at those numbers and say it's going to be a blowout, but I wouldn't expect a blowout. Yeah, I think that the Democrats were energized. Alec had no primary. He's working on building his fundraising list, um, but didn't run like a get as many votes as you can in the primary kind of race. And it's hard to do without an opponent. It's it's not possible. Um, and I did a study on this a couple of years ago, and all that is is a sign of who ran a really good primary race, right? And and a good example is my dad ran in his last election and won by one and a half points. And he was behind in that vote comparison in the primary sides with two uncontested primaries, but like 3,500 votes. So, I, you know, run a good campaign and you can totally flip that number. Big number to flip. And Alec knows that. And I know that's why he was frustrated about the way the maps were drawn, because it really did disadvantage him. But I mean, election night, Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise were all tweeting congratulations to Alec and wanting him to win. And so I think they back him. I think that if DC comes in and, and buys TV time, I think if Alec really hits the doors and Hoyle, who won't get caught flat-footed, she's a tough customer. Her last race against uh, Avakin and Devlin in the Secretary of State primary was just brutal and almost three-way exact split. Avakin only won that by four points. I'm looking at the totals there, 168,000 to 145,000 votes. That's a close race. So she is no slouch. And so it's really just about how big is the red wave in Oregon Right. And well, the, how good of a campaign does Alec win? And the, the here's the other thing I've been thinking about. So Democrats. So at the beginning of this cycle, everyone was like, oh, my God, the maps are going to be so bad for Democrats, Republicans. voted up. And then there was this wave of like, oh, my God, the maps turned out. And I'm talking about redistricting across the country. Yes. Um, then mm -hmm. everyone was like, oh, my gosh, the Democrats did so well. Well, the last few months have actually been devastating for Democrats, capped by the new mm -hmm. New York congressional maps, which take away several Democratic seats. So the other thing that's worth wondering—I'm sorry—you mean you mean keep several Republican seats that Democrats tried to eliminate? <laughs> sorry, uh, you say tomato. Um, okay. <laughs> so, but why that matters is if you're Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, all you care about is getting into the majority, and you have yep. a finite number of resources that you can deploy across the country in races that you think give you the best chance of doing it. If Val is pulling 
really strongly in CD4. Um, and there's new seats that are on the map in New York and Florida and whatever, and California, where they think they can, they have a better shot of picking them up. I, this has happened many times. It's happened at the state legislative level where leadership endorses a candidate, tells them, makes them all kinds of promises of the resources that'll be there for them. But then when the polling comes back and the map sort of solidifies, uh, leadership is not there to turn out the money that they need to win. So I'm not saying that's what will happen to Alec, but I think I think Scarlatos has the steepest margin to overcome of the three Oregon congressional yes, districts. CD5 and 6 are both more competitive. Um, so it will be interesting to see like the extent to which the national national donors and PACs actually do play in CD4. Yeah, I mean, his job is to make it close in August and September polling. That's his job right now. And if he can do that, I think resources will be there. And if he can't, um, the, I don't think the resources will show up. And I think that's that's right. So a place where resources are almost certainly to show up on both sides is CD5. Mm -hmm. um, you've got Lori Chavez de Reamer, who again, over performance, I think she, she did better than it was not very close. It was, you know, she's at 42%, uh, Jimmy Crumpacker's at 30%. Um, and then, you know, a few candidates actually split the remaining votes. Um, so, I mean, low voter turn, I guess we still don't have Clackamas numbers. So I actually won't even mention the total number of votes cast. Cause I don't think that's helpful. Yeah. I mean, I think Clackamas will add another 20 to 25,000, maybe more to that. It seemed like they were kind of in the 60 to 50,000 range. And so if you kind of factor in, maybe a third of those are Republican ballots, uh, so, maybe a little more. But, so, yeah. so that's Lori over Jimmy. Jamie is currently winning 60-40 over Kurt. Like you said, everyone thinks it's going to shrink. I think Dave mm -hmm. Wasserman said it won't be enough at this current rate. Although, I don't know. I don't know what Sherry Hall is doing, and I have no ability to know whether it's predictive or not. But yeah. we talked about the vote totals at um, – for CD4 in this race, it's 42,000 Republican, 45,000 Democrat. So right. a, lot, a lot more, a lot closer. I think this is literally one of the closest in the country. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that they said it's a Biden plus five seat, but Biden overperformed in Oregon compared to Trump. Trump didn't do very well here. So I don't think that that's a good metric. This seat has gone Republican in competitive governor's races before. Like, I think um, I was talking to a couple of the candidates in this race and they, they both got data from the NRCC once this map was confirmed. And they're like, yeah, this one went red in the new Bueller, um, Kate Brown election. So like, it's very swingy, very swingy territory. And I think um, you have kind of two competing theories. And we talked about those last time, which is McLeod Skinner is a better Democrat and therefore has a better chance to hold the district because not all Democrats would show up for Schrader. But on the other hand, Schrader has survived a previous wave um, so we'll get to test that theory with Jamie. Can Jamie sustain um, the kind of numbers that Schrader ran in this district, which and, have been pretty good against Republicans? And can Jamie attract the kind of national money that Kurt was able to raise? Um, you know, Kurt was a very, Kurt, Congressman Schrader, very prolific fundraiser, as we mentioned. He was like the best congressional fundraiser in Oregon. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if Jamie's taken certain pledges about PACs or corporate money or whatever, which was frankly a lot of money that I think Congressman Schrader was raising. Um, Lori Chavez Dreamer, I think, will have no problem raising a lot of money at the national level. Um, I agree with that. And I think that Jamie's Jamie's progressive lane precludes her from getting certain money, but just like any other progressive running in any other district would, not all those corporate, um, you know, swingy kind of groups would come and back uh, a traditional progressive anyway. So I don't right. think that's necessarily her fault. 
but can she get the progressive groups to come and have her back? Can she get um, the type of local donations that she needs, right? And you have this situation where, um, I don't, I can't remember if this is right. I better go check this um, real quick, but I retweeted somebody earlier. Um, and I think it was a, a journalist who said that um, the residency inside these districts is, is, is either very close or doesn't exist for any of these candidates in five and six with Salinas living outside her district, Erickson, Erickson li- living out, outside the district. Um, and I think Lori uh, McLeod Skinner and Lori Chavez dreamer, according to Chris Lehman uh, at Capital Currents on Twitter, um, all four of these candidates <laughs> live outside of their districts. Um, so I think that that just, that presents, it, it, it's, it's part of this issue with the new maps, obviously. Um, but also is going to present a challenge because they just, nobody knows these folks, um, or, or at least not enough people know them yet. Um, and so raising money is going to matter uh, in congressional races for sure. Um, so the final congressional race, the one that probably got the most attention was CD6. Um, as we mentioned, Andrea Salinas wins handily. Um, also, Mike Erickson wins handily. So um Salinas is at 37%. The next closest is Carrick Flynn at 19%. Then Cody Reynolds at yeah. 12%. Uh, Loretta Smith did uh, overperformed what I thought she would do. She got about 10%. Uh, Kathleen Harder underperformed a little bit what I thought. She's at 8%. Matt West underperformed what I thought at 8%. And TL um, was at about 6%. So a lot of vote split, but clearly Salinas, um, the, the, the leader, and then on the Republican side, Mike Erickson at 35%. Um, he really kind of crushed the competition. Ron Noble at about 18 and a half, Amy Ryan Corser at 15, Angela Plowhead at 12, 13, and Jim Bunn at 11. Um, so, yeah, so if you go on uh, Open Secrets, this is a great site. Um, and I had been here before, but I didn't realize this is how they broke out the data. So they have the district and amount raised but by congressional district. And then right below that, they have uh, external uh, independent expenditures that happen independent of the candidates and who they supported and who they opposed. Because all that data has to be filed for election commission. Uh, so looking at total um, raised by individual candidates, Cody Reynolds raised the most money. But as you said, he didn't, didn't even come close to, to second in that one. He raised 2.7. A lot of those loans, like a 2 million of that was loans. Spent most of it, right? Matt West loaned himself some money, had raised a million total, spent almost a million. And um, Carrick Flynn raised a million, spent, um, right now it says this has got to be 334000 So I'm hoping they emptied his bank accounts. Otherwise, that's not going to look great. Um, Although that and would then Erickson be, raising, that'd be interesting. And loaned yeah. close to 750000 and spending most of that, yeah. Sorry for now. I was just going to say that would be interesting if there was some strategy of like, well, I don't need to spend my money because the super PAC is helping me win the primary, then I'll bring this to the general. But anyway, okay, so on the Republican side, uh, Mike Erickson, clear winner, 35%. Ron Noble, who a lot of people thought was would have been a really strong general election candidate, about 19%. Amy Ryan Corser at 15, Angela Plowhead 13, and Jim Bunn down at 11%. Reagan, you may agree, you may disagree. My take is Salinas is a strong general election candidate and Erickson is a weak general election candidate or at least weaker than the alternative of Ron Noble. There's of course the the controversy we're just reading here. Uh, it was Kevin Mannix, who is now the Republican nominee for the state legislature down in 
um, Kaiser, who attacked Mike Erickson in 2008 when he ran for Congress for dropping his girlfriend off at an abortion clinic and giving her money. Um, Mike Erickson, of course, disputes that that version of events. Um, but what do you make of that matchup between Salinas and Erickson in the general? Yeah, I think it's always uh, if you're recruiting in a race, you would want someone with tested elected experience. And Erickson doesn't have that. Right. He's run in races, hasn't won one yet, hasn't been an elected official that I know of. Maybe he served in local capacity, but he has a, a business background. Right. That's pretty popular among Republicans. Um, so I think. Uh, you know, depending on what happens again with that kind of the old opposition research, does it come back up again? Does another group try to attack him on it? Um, does does Salinas attack him on it? Don't know. Um, we'll just have to kind of watch that play off. But I, I agree. Um, Erickson's biggest uh, obvious advantage is the fundraising he raised and gave himself a good chunk of money, 722000 total between his loans and his, um, and his contributions. And next closest was actually Army veteran Nate Sandvig at $250,000 and then Ron Noble $130,000. And so um, I think that it, it's crazy. And it, oh, here is my hot take on the Mike Erickson race here. Okay. Um, so Erickson has this liability out there among Republicans. And I don't know if this was a question of staff resources or what. Mike Erickson doesn't have a Facebook page. <laughs> and that is unheard of. But he won the primary. And I think in a situation where um, you either don't have the resources for it uh, or you're focused on other things or you're worried about the potential liability of opposition research against you, you can get away with not having a Facebook page in a primary um, if you're outspending your opponents. And especially if you're doing so on TV and in the mail. I, I talk to people in that district who are Republicans who got Mike Erickson mail, multiple mailers like every day for like two weeks. He, and, he also mailed. He also mailed out of his district, and he mailed to households where there were no Republicans. So I have no idea what the mail consultant was doing in that race, but that is verified that both of those things happened. Hey, man, uh, you know when you got to do what you got to do uh, <laughs> in order to win these races, right? Um, yeah, that's obviously tough, but hopefully he sorts that out for the for the general election. Um, and, and his, I mean, he spent it all. His cash on hand's pretty low, uh, under a hundred thousand dollars. And I'm sure he spent some of that in the final days of the election and it hasn't been fully reported yet. So, um, yeah, I think this is a race to watch just like Alec, Mike Erickson has to prove in the late, uh, summer and early fall that this is competitive. Um, and if he does, the money will show up. And, um, I think that Erickson, you'll kind of find him surprisingly well connected based on people I've talked to. He's got good relationships. He just hasn't been in the limelight. And so can he leverage those? To get what he needs out of DC. I think that's always the question. Everyone says they've got DC connections, but uh, it's rare for those connections to be good connections. And so we'll see if if that works out for him. So in the last section of the podcast, we're gonna go we're gonna go quickly between Portland Metro races, legislative um, races, but we're gonna start with the last statewide race. Actually, two two quick statewide statewide uh, hits. One, Darlene Ortega handily defeats Vance Day for a position on the uh, Court of Appeals. Not even close. Uh, Vance Day proclaimed that he was going to win on the Rational Republican podcast. He did not. He lost badly, which, frankly, I don't think people were surprised. She's an inc- She was an incumbent, longtime incumbent, had incumbent next to her name on the ballot. So she That's won. tough to overcome. That's, that's rough to overcome. If Republicans wanted to make an indent on the judiciary, it's either got to be through Republican appointments on, that, on, on those open seats um, or it's got to be through removing that incumbency tag in order to kind of make those more competitive. Because I think it, it's different with politicians where in some of these races, people picked outsiders and picked against the establishment. Not very many 
Um, as you kind of pointed out, this wasn't that much of an anti-establishment election, but there was a few cases where it was. But especially in judges' races, you really don't want an inexperienced judge, and most people don't know what to look for in a judge. So they tend to assume that unless a judge has done something wrong or created controversy like Vance Day did, and I think that you know probably hurt him a little bit. Obviously, he'll say that he was the target of partisan attacks. But, you know, I think that that's just that's just the way that race went. And I think that the incumbency tag made a big difference there, too. OK, so Boley, another nonpartisan race, which is, which is where Val Hoyle's leaving. That's why this is this is yep. open. So I thought Christina Stevenson was going to come in first place and I thought Sherry Helt was going to come in second place. Um, yep. But I did not expect christina stevenson to be at she is currently at 47 percent of the vote at one yeah. point during early returns she was over 50 percent of the vote sherry Helt is less than 20 percent of the vote right now casey kula is at 14 percent brent barker at 11 percent of the vote overperforming expectations so yeah i mean frankly if like there's some twitter back and forth on this about Casey Kula's um, participation in the race and some people defending him. And I saw some people with takes that, uh, or heard some people with takes that if Casey wasn't in the race, Christina would have run out, out would have won outright. Of course, she got less than 50%. So it's going to go to the general election, which of course means, I don't know, Reagan, how much do you think it's spent on this race over the next six months? 500,000, 600, maybe more? Yeah, I would say less than a million. So, so I know a couple of people who are union members who got one piece of mail on the bully race. And it was just a letter from their union saying, vote Christina Stevenson for a Bureau of Labor and Industries. She will protect workers. As far as I know, that was really the only major piece of communications. I mean, I know she did some stuff, but she, no, was, no, none of these candidates were able to raise anything to do statewide mail, TV, anything. Right. And so I think that had a huge impact. And then just the individual network to these people, Sherry Helts, a former state representative. So she's got a stronger network than, than even Casey Kula, who was a local elected official. Right. And so I think that that pretty much explains these results. I kind of think that Brent T. Barker, people confused him for the former state representative, Brent Barker, um, who he is not. Jeff, Jeff Barker. Or Brent Barton. Uh, Brent Barton. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, did, I can't believe I just did that. My apologies to Jeff Barker and Brent Barton. Um, maybe voters did what I did and said, hey, it's a mashup of my two favorite state legislators. Um, gosh, I feel so bad. But anyway, yes. So, you know, I think that, that their networks basically explain this. And I agree. I think if Casey wasn't in this race, uh, Stevenson might have won outright. She almost certainly would have won outright. Like his his he had he had mostly Democratic or left of center endorsements. People like Ted Kulangoski. I would say I would say I saw a ton of people, and that's because I follow Casey Kula. So um, hi Casey. Uh, <laughs> I saw a ton of him retweeting all of these people on Twitter saying I'm voting for Casey Kula. I think that 15 percent of voters is the very online segment of hashtag Oracle voters who are just like so interested in Casey because he was the most active Twitter candidate um running for bully and um, he, he won yamhill county yes he won his home county which uh that's uh that's not always a guarantee in these races and but wasn't um, you you who noticed that in his seat which he's he's democrat him leaving his seat it's now two republicans heading to the runoff on the yamhill county yeah so a moderate republican mayor and and a timber unity backed uh business owner are going to face off in the general election so rough times at the county commission level for democrats in a lot of these seats having trouble uh the by the way the other place where anti-incumbency sediment we talked about lane county earlier we're talking about yamhill these open seats the open seats the open seat lane county trending republican also that'll go to a runoff but there were three republicans and the main republican that did the most fundraising was ahead 
of the Democrat um, in the most conservative um, district in Lane County, and then also here in Yamhill, and then in Clackamas County. Uh, ben West, who's a Wilsonville city councilor, got 47% of the vote. Sonia Fisher, the incumbent, got 33%. I heard a rumor on election night that Sherry Hall, I don't know if this is true, so very big flag on this. I heard that the Clackamas County Elections Office was counting Republican ballots first. Oh, wow. I don't that know would, if that, I had not seen that, would, that reported, but this was uh, shared with me as something that wasn't like a secret or sketchy, but just like their order of counting was Republicans first, then Democrats. I don't know if that's true, but that's why I'm like, I haven't even, I'm taking all the Clackamas County stuff with a huge grain of salt. That's um, probably best. That would be shocking to me if that was the, that was how thought. they were handling it. But weird and not good, yeah. but um, okay. Anyway, we are almost out of time, but we still have to talk about, um, a couple of Portland Metro races and legislative races. So real quickly, I will say strong finish for Lynn Peterson, uh, currently over 50%, although she is doing worse in Clackamas County than she is in Multnomah and Washington. So that may force a runoff um, when all votes are counted. We will have to see um, really strong finish for Joanne Hardesty. Uh, I think she's at 43 or 44% of the vote. Um, Vadim uh, Mazursky and Renee Gonzalez are like really close right now. Renee is ahead. So that will be a runoff in the general. And then Dan Ryan, a super decisive win, uh, wasn't even close. He's 60 something percent, no runoff. He gets a full term on the council. Um, I think the reason for those results real quick is because everyone knows charter is going to be on the ballot charter reform. No one was thrown out the incumbents trying to fix their city. They're they're more bought in on this charter reform and knowing that their system is broken. And so they're kind of focused on that more so, but could be wrong. That's well, my one, take. One, one other observation here though, is like uh, to, to varying degrees, but especially Lynn Peterson and Joanne Hardesty um, and Jessica Vega Peterson, by the way, who's leading, but headed to a runoff likely with Sharon Myron uh, for the Multnomah County chairs race. Um, people for Portland was they weren't attack ads, but they were basically trying to portray Portland leaders as, you know, inept or not taking the actions necessary. No evidence that any of that money played an impact in these outcomes that I can see. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that, again, that just has to do with our system and, and making it difficult for the rage election to happen. Um, you know, maybe that's a wrong take, but you kind of think about those early ballot measures that that happened, the bill size more and the tax reform and all those kinds of ballot measures and how we haven't had those recently. I think it's just the electorate here has gotten more used to used to seeing these things happen and really thinking them all the way through and 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 being, you know, obviously the state tilts more democratic too um, than it has in the past. So I think, you know, that that has had more of an impact also. Um, okay, so the the last section here, Reagan, is the legislative results. Um, yep. I know we we both there's like I, I I've written down like 15 <laughs> races. Uh, we won't talk about all of them. Um, high points, I will say um, races in the Senate that people were watching. Um, Rep. Daniel Bonham, huge win over Steve Bates, spent a ton of money. He spent like a quarter million dollars raised and spent. Yep. Um, but just I think he's at 80 percent or something. Got to um, correct what I said in the last podcast. I called him former state representative. Daniel Bonham. He's current state representative. I meant soon to be former, as in I was pretty sure he was going to win this primary, and I'm pretty sure he's going to win his general election. 
Although and it's our is... plus five uh, seat. Oh, interesting. So, so Bonham in the Willamette Week interview said that it was an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, but I guess that doesn't mean performance. Um, so yeah, this district will perform a little bit more conservative than that because it doesn't include a lot of urban area, even though like it, it's got a little bit of it, but it's not like that hardcore urban area. It's like ex-urban area, um, if that makes sense. Um, okay, so uh, Aaron Woods a candidate in Senate District 13, that's my area, Tigard, Sherwood, King City, and Wilsonville defeats Chelsea King in what was probably the most closely watched um, Democratic primary. Um, Yeah, and King outspent Aaron Woods big. I was thinking that she was going to win this and was just shocked by these results. Well, and and keep an eye on Orstar for the final week because I heard that there was some pretty significant giving to Aaron Woods in the final week. Um, so we will see how that turns out there. They each frankly had an even, not an even split, but like fairly split on endorsements. I would say Chelsea probably yeah. had better individual endorsements, but Aaron probably had a slight edge on institutional endorsements. I did, I think I got five mail pieces from Aaron and maybe four or three. So pretty even on mail, mm. but anyway, that was an interesting race. OBI, Oregon business and industries. We've, um, uh, who we've talked <coughs> about on this podcast, they endorsed Aaron Woods very Un, not very, but relatively uncommon for them to endorse in a Democratic primary. In part they almost because, exclusively deal in in incumbent um, protection. Yeah, and they picked Aaron, and I think invested five or ten k to support him. So, um, and then there was the the Woodburn area seat where you had um, Anthony Rosillis, um, Mayor Swenson of Woodburn, and then Rich Walsh, um, who I didn't really fully understand the lanes of that race but it looks like swenson is going to win that primary yeah and he'll take on um quasi incumbent kim thatcher so she mm. because the district lines move so much she doesn't have her whole seat but she has chunks of salem and a little bit of kaiser where she used to live um this is the the number is the old peter courtney seat and it includes a good chunk of his um seat but he's retiring and um the primary turnout number is very close on that one so i'd expect this to be a a good contest um to watch um, so yeah, in terms of house races, uh, the Neelam Gupta, Daniel Wen primary in Lake Oswego is, um, unpredictable, but I heard that because there's so much Clackamas left and Clackamas is skewing towards Daniel right now that he's likely to win. Um, Brad Witt loses his, his, um, reelection campaign. I'm using quotation marks for our podcast listeners, um, since he was running in a different district. Um, and Witt heavily outspent Tom Anderson and Jackie Lewing, who is a city councilor, dropped out but couldn't get her name off the ballot. And both Anderson and Lewing are in the progressive lane. And Anderson spent $12,000 and still won that seat, uh, despite Witt spending 100000 and maybe more independent, I don't know, uh, money getting spent for him. That I, I was shocked by that because it was a huge disadvantage for Anderson for Jackie Lewing to be on the ballot, um, but still pulled it out. So pretty impressive. Uh, then, on that one in terms of other races there were not a ton that i was super i don't think there's any that i was shocked by um for any of the other primaries no. they, they sh- shook out about the way that we thought there were some like you know in that hd12 race charlie conrad wins but all of the candidates were like within 10 or 15 points of each other basically um, got a quarter of the vote each on honestly yeah. no one's under 20 percent. no one's over 35 like um, yeah, that was, that'll be interesting to watch. Cause I'm pretty sure that's a heavy Republican advantage seat. Yes. So that is, um, that's going to be, a uh, you know, Conrad's going to be in good shape, uh, there for the fall if he holds on. And I think that he will, cause I think Lane's pretty quick on their, 
ballot counting. Um, House Rep 17 district, the Republican primary between Beth Jones and Ed Deal, 70 uh, 30. You were correct. Uh, that's a pretty big win. Uh, I had predicted that one. And uh, I think that Ed goes on to an easy general uh, election victory. Um, so I, we don't have to play the prediction game. Um, but I will say so HD 21. RJ Navarro wins the Democratic primary. Kevin Mannix wins the Republican primary. My understanding is this is one of the closer um, registration districts. Yep. I think there's slight Democratic advantage, but it seems entirely plausible that Kevin Mannix could be a state representative yet again. Yeah, I would put I would give uh, Mannix the advantage here. He has more of that institutional back support. Navarro's gotten the general Democratic backing, but he's always run in, in harder districts. Um, once against Bill Post and maybe one other seat uh, for Kaiser City Council was my, uh, if I remember correctly, which Kevin I may Mannix, not be. Kevin Mannix first elected to the Oregon House of Representatives in 1988. As um, a Democrat, as I a will Democrat. remind you. He changed parties partway through his uh, public service. Yes. So uh, that'll be an interesting one to watch. Um, any other observations on the legislative level, Reagan? Before yes, I'm looking for House District 51. And this is one of those ones where oh, I was told um, lawn signs don't vote, but if they could, James Heeb, the incumbent who didn't have the traditional incumbent backing, looks like he would win. This is Clackamas. So again, we're taking all those results with a grain of salt, but the early ballots um, show him ahead 60-40 against Lisa Davidson, the challenger who did um, outraise him not by a ton, but maybe twenty or thirty grand, um, and had more of that institutional lobbyist style um, response. So I don't know if that um, what else was at play in this district. I didn't get a ton of that one, but um, James Heeb looks like he may hold on to his seat um, despite having been appointed just before or the short session started. So um, pretty interesting result there. Uh, so 2022 general election uh, across the board. I think here's a high takeaway to close and then Reagan, I'll hand to you for the last word. Um, there's going to be a ton of competitive races, a ton of money spent. Um, nope. Races that normally wouldn't be competitive are going to be super competitive. Um, I, I, I spoke to some people. They're actually progressives who are anticipating that the the senate your father's pack might swoop in and uh and defeat um i think they just need three pickups for it to be split yeah i think that's right so um and i i always miscount this because boquist is an independent but but basically votes with republicans um and if they get to and here's the thing i don't know i haven't talked with boquist i haven't talked to anyone clearly this is just speculation my assumption is if republicans plus boquist equals 16 seats they have the votes to organize the leadership and they won't have split. I would assume that's what happens. If they win 14, my my assumption is Boquist votes with Republicans and they share power um, with co-Senate presidents uh, because that has been the most um, tested and effective way to split power. Um, you've had in other states where the Senate president has been uh, the member, uh, you know, they've, they've been sharing or has been one member that's defected from his party. But I don't think that will be the case here. Well, remember um, in Oregon, when there was a split in the, I think it was in the nineties, Peter Courtney was the consensus candidate. He was a moderate Democrat who was elevated. Yes. I think that's how he first, be, he first became Senate president. I think that's split, right. Split Senate. Mm -hmm. So because we didn't uh, have a split Senate in, in 2010, but we did in the, in the nineties. That's right. Yes. Yes. So that, that and I think I think there's a lot of Republicans from that era who would tell you they should have gone co-Senate president <laughs> and they didn't. 
because turns out Peter Courtney uh, didn't leave for two, uh, almost three <laughs> decades. So uh, maybe that didn't work to their advantage. But you're right. Yes, he came to power at, at that consensus split, but they didn't split committees the exact same way either. So I think the 2010 model more likely to be employed if that Senate splits close like that. Uh, but if Republicans take control, I mean, you'll see pretty big change. I don't know that anyone's necessarily expecting the House to flip, but there's enough seats on the table that it could in a good year for Republicans or if a couple of Dems get caught flat footed. So um, we'll really see um, how organized can Republicans get. And I, when OPB talked to me about um, the governor's race and, and what can happen and, and is there really a chance for governor's race, what I'm looking for basically is are Republicans coalescing? Are we are we continuing the internal fights or are we all getting behind circling the wagons, focusing on the issues that matter, not just to Republicans, but to moderate voters. And if that happens and the resources are there, it could be a great year, one of the best in our history. Um, but if we don't, you could see uh, Democrats continue uh, that, that, you know, the control that they've exerted for a while at the legislative level, um, and especially at the statewide level. So it'll be my, interesting to watch. My message to Republicans would be don't listen to Reagan. Uh, feel free to write in people, vote for the Constitution Party nominee, express your support for who you want, and don't let the party machine tell you to vote for. And, and, and to the voters in Ben's district, <laughs> I would say uh, that Ben's a nice guy, uh, but you never know what he's going to do in the legislature. So just be careful uh, and, and make sure to write him uh, as many emails as humanly possible because <laughs> he committed to me that he's going to read every single one of them, uh, even the spam. So sign him up for all kinds of lists. Thank you for that plug. Um, so with that, this was a very long episode, but I think we did a pretty comprehensive review of what happened and why it matters. Um, a thank you to everyone who has subscribed to our YouTube channel. We'll probably have a, a celebration when when Alex gets back because he's been pushing the uh, the YouTube subscribers. But we've officially reached the threshold where we now get to have our own uh, YouTube URL specific to our name. So Buddy and Alex are very happy about that. So thank you for the support. And uh, yeah, Reagan, if anyone wants to wants to follow along with your thoughts, um, what's the best way for them to be in touch? Uh, you can find my newsletter, my website, and really everything on my Twitter account at Reagan Canope um, or ReaganCanope.net. You've got links. They're all interlinked because those are the places I spend um, the most time. been trying to write more newsletters um, and, and send out stuff. And, and lately, it's just been self-promoting my appearances on this podcast because Alex has been gone so much. So um, <laughs> hopefully Alex comes back to you guys here. Um, tan, rested, and ready to talk about uh, the Biden border. <laughs> All right, everybody, that's it for today's episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.